let's dive into this topic. Marriage. Marriage. Marriage is God's design, and it's wonderful. And I feel like I need to say that right off the bat, because as I talk to different people as we've been going through this series, uh, I, I feel, well, it's like what C.S. Lewis said last week when we looked at the issue of friendship, and he said in writing his chapter on friendship and the four spiritual laws that the, the idea of friendship has so been lost that to write about it is to do a work of rehabilitation. And I feel like in some ways marriage is that way too, because honestly, um, marriage has taken a beating in our culture and our world in so many ways, um, you know, with the advent of no-fault divorce, um, it's, it's just been really devastating. Social cohesion, um, people hurt. And even if you haven't experienced divorce, um, probably some of your best friends have. And therefore, uh, I feel like it's shaped a whole, um, a whole generation as far as your hopes and your expectations. And, you know, it's interesting, like 30, 40 years ago, would you have had to try to talk people into the idea that marriage is a good thing and it's God's design? I don't think so. But these days, you almost have to make those sorts of arguments. Um, There was a guy named Tom Smith. He works for the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. And I like this quote. He said this, if there was a product that you could offer to the marketplace that would let you live longer, be twice as happy, have better and more frequent sex, you'd probably earn billions of dollars. And there is such a product. The product is marriage. Those are all demonstrably true things, but you would never know that to hear people talk in our day and age. But marriage is God's design, and it's a good thing. Now, tonight, I don't have the Scripture printed out. I'm thinking there are a bunch of Bibles there. Brian, Caleb, why don't you guys go grab some of those Bibles? Because we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. See, there's a bunch of them in there. I can see them from here. If you don't have a Bible, you can't look on with a Bible, and you can't look on uh, somebody's phone with a Bible, raise your hand. I could use one up here, actually, because I always print out the Scripture, so I didn't bring my Bible. All right, I'll have that one. Ah, it's pretty good. Can tell where my son gets his baseball prowess. Uh, so uh, Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter five. Who needs a Bible? Yeah, take take a second here to get some Bibles. Here, somebody can borrow this one. Because if I don't look it up on my phone, I can't read this. Not bad. Ephesians chapter 5 is our passage for tonight. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is referencing the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're not going to look at that, but he makes reference to it. But it's another great passage for looking at marriage. And we're going to look starting at verse 21. Now, if you have an NIV or other translations of the Bible, they put these little subheadings in. They put them in there to be helpful, but you need to know that these subheadings in italics are not part of the Bible. 
They're put in there by the publisher of the Bible, okay, to help you. This is one of those times where in many of the modern translations, they put a subheading in that's a really unhelpful thing because they often put it in, like even on my, my Bible here, my ESV on my phone, they cut off verse 21 from verse 22. Verse 21 really starts the section. Whenever I do weddings, if somebody wants to read verses 22 and on in their wedding, I refuse to do it unless we also get to read verse 21. So we're going to start with verse 21 tonight as well. Um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, you know, there's a lot in this passage, and I'm not even going to get into the submission part of it tonight, okay? Just giving you a heads up. That's next week. We're going to talk about gender roles in marriage because, um, speaking to college students, that's a topic that we really need to dig into in some depth, and so we're going to spend a whole week on it. As a matter of fact, we may not even get all through the outline tonight, and that's okay because we have two weeks on marriage. But here's the thing. The, the, the thing to understand, Paul's going through this passage. He's talking about marriage, and then it's almost like he does this little twist at the end and says, ha-ha, I wasn't really talking about marriage. I'm really talking about God and his relationship to the church, but, you know, it still applies to marriage. It's a really fascinating passage, isn't he? Because Paul is saying, look, based upon Genesis and this creation idea that the man shall leave, leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, he's saying that from the very beginning, God created marriage to teach us about himself. And right away, you realize that when we come to the Christian idea of marriage, Christians come at this topic very differently than a lot of other people. Christian idea of marriage is this. God created marriage to teach us about his love. The reason that's important is that his love is bigger than even the best marriage that you've ever experienced. In other words, you could think of marriage as a signpost pointing us to what God and his love is like. Though for some in this room, absolutely, it's a signpost that in your own experience, maybe it's very difficult to see the love of God from it. Nonetheless, we don't start with marriage and say, well, marriage is really great, so God must be wonderful. No, God created marriage to teach us about his love, but it's his love that is truly wonderful. It's his love that is truly dependable and reliable. Marriage exists to glorify God. 
Marriage exists so that people would understand that he is passionate about his people and he loves them sacrificially. And in some ways, um, in, in some ways, we need marriage to really begin to understand all of what that means. Uh, Marva Dawn, who's a Lutheran uh, theologian, I really love her writings, she says this, the main purpose of marriage is to display for all the world to see the mystery of Christ's fidelity to and saving work for his bride. God has left a witness to his love in this idea and this custom of marriage. Marriage, in other words, is not a human invention. It's not that God looked down at all the cultures of the world and said, wow, you know what? What's really interesting is all these people seem to have this idea of wanting to get together and committing themselves together, and they call it marriage or whatever it is in their various languages, and I could really work with that. That's awesome. I could work with that. I could, I could use that. No, it's just the opposite. God created marriage. The very first two people that he created, he brought them together in marriage to glorify him, to serve him, to work the creation and bring about all of the God-glorifying potential that he built into his world. And then, out of that, with sin entering in the world, all the various cultures of the world have more or less of a remembrance of what we were made for originally. You see echoes in all the various cultures because everybody knows in their heart of hearts because they're made in God's image that they were made to be committed and to commit to something and to something other than themselves because God made us that way. This is the Christian contention that you were made to commit and to be committed to. You were made to have somebody rave over you. And you know that in your heart of hearts. It resonates with you. Now, I always, when I do weddings, I always like to point out at the beginning of the service, the fact that marriage is God's signpost to point us to his love is good news, both for those who are married and like it, that it's even better what God has in store. It's good news for those who are not married and want to be, that marriage is not heaven. There's something even better. It's good news for people who are married and don't want to be. And I found it disappointing and difficult. It's a signpost. It's not the thing itself. It would be like, you know, my parents just drove up you know, the other day, and if they're like driving up from 65 on I-65, they get about 30 miles from here, and they see a sign that says Nashville, 30 miles. It would be ridiculous for them to pull the car over, to stop, to get out, and say, here we are. Awesome. I love Nashville. No, it's a signpost pointing to something, and we haven't arrived there yet. All of the Bible speaks of a day coming, the marriage feast of the Lamb. I know it's weird language, but what it means is this, that you were made for a grand, great party like you can't even barely imagine, and it will be a wedding at the center of it. And God's people, corporately, God's people will be the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom who can't wait to sit down at that feast with his bride, with his people. You know, when you do a lot of weddings, and being a college pastor, I get to do a lot of weddings, you get the best seat in the house. Because the best moment in any wedding, I believe, 
is when the bride first walks in, not to look at the bride, beautiful as she is, dressed in all her splendor, but to look at the groom looking at the bride. And sometimes you even hear an audible gasp. And I like to think every time of that experience that that pales in comparison to what God thinks about his bride. You think you long for all things to be made right, for sin and evil and brokenness to be done away with, and for us to finally experience the consummation of what we were made for, perfect, loving, intimate relationship with our God, Jesus is more excited about it than even you are. So God has created marriage to teach us about his love. And the Bible's teaching on, on marriage, even in its own day, was countercultural. I would submit that that's a pretty countercultural idea in our day because most people think of relationships as things that are carefully negotiated. But when we come to marriage, we find that God tells us what marriage is about, what it's for, and how we're to live in it. Now, th- that rankles a lot of people, I guess, but it's God's invention. So he should have the right to tell us what it was made for and what it's about. As a matter of fact, if you go into marriage as sort of a carefully negotiated contract, prenup agreements and all that kind of stuff, you really rob marriage of the essence of what it is, which is this whole-souled commitment, not knowing what the future holds, but knowing who holds the future. That's what marriage is about. Now, in Paul's day, the, the biblical teaching on marriage was pretty radical and countercultural as well. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we, we looked at this briefly, I think, and we'll look at it again when we talk about sex, I suspect. Um, Paul says, not only does the wife's body belong to the husband, and everybody in his day would have said, well, of course, that's what wives are for, but he also goes on and says that the husband's body belongs to the wife. In other words, the biblical understanding of marriage is that wives and husbands come together and they both are to enjoy marriage. They're both to enjoy sex. They're both to benefit from marriage. It's to be a blessing to both of them. Now, you know, what's interesting, there are many places in the Bible where you get little hints about this. Um, for instance, regularly the Bible talks about wives, particularly says this in the creation account, that Eve was created to be man's helper. Now, a lot of people in our day misunderstand that and think that that's a demeaning term, but it's worth noting that that term is regularly used of God, who is described as Israel's helper, very rarely applied to a person. It's not a demeaning idea at all, the idea of a helper. As a matter of fact, over in uh, Proverbs 2.17 the word used there uh, for this idea of helper and partner, companion, is a word used in Psalm 55 for one who is our closest friend with whom we enjoy sweet fellowship. Because the Bible's understanding of becoming one flesh is bigger than just having sex. Marriage is about uniting, uniting two who are different and yet made for each other. As a matter of fact, back in Deuteronomy, there's even this interesting verse where the Israelite soldiers were told that when they became married for an entire year, they were not to go to war. And the Bible says, for the wife's pleasure. That's crazy in the biblical 
culture or in the culture of those days where men... See, here's the problem. God created marriage. God created marriage, you see in Ephesians 5, for the husband to sacrifice for the wife. And yet, as we know, sin enters the world, distorts and messes up everything. And this relationship that was to be a blessing for the man and the woman often has been twisted and used oppressively against women. Absolutely. But that was never God's intent. And God is not content to just let us make marriage to be whatever we want it to be. He says, this is what it's about. It's about mutual submission. Verse 21. In such a way that you build each other up, encourage one another, and help each other become more and more like Jesus. Marriage is a covenant commitment not a contract with loopholes. This is what this whole idea about leaving and cleaving is about. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to see, say something else first. Uh, it talks here in, in this section of Ephesians about, well, here, here's, here's the way I always like to put this. The Bible never gives bare commands. So even when Paul here is saying, wives live this way, husbands live this way, he can't even say do this or do that without slipping into the reason why. And here the reason why is rooted in Christ's sacrifice and love for the church. So not only is marriage to teach us about God's love for his church in sort of a general way, it's particularly to teach us about Christ's sacrificial love for the church. The church who is full of sin and hypocrites and selfish, arrogant people. But God said, Christ has come to cleanse the church from every spot, every blemish. And that marriage should teach us not just about God's love, but about Christ's sacrificial cleansing love. So what part of that means is everybody who gets married needs cleansing. Nobody comes into marriage without baggage. Nobody comes into marriage without idols and selfishness and a commitment to take care of themselves and to use other people. And that's just the reality. But God in marriage has given us something that is designed to help us connect to the gospel. It, it's, it's so important that we understand this. I remember when Wendy and I, before we were married, we were going to see a counselor, and he looked at Wendy and said, Wendy, you're the woman for the job, the job of helping Kevin repent. Sometimes I wonder if she's really up to it because <laughs> it's quite the challenge. But the same is true for me. It doesn't mean I'm to go around and just sort of nitpick, but God has put us in a relationship, a covenant commitment, not sort of a carefully negotiated agreement where I say, Wendy, I won't challenge your sin, you don't challenge mine, and we'll just sort of have this nice partnership. And we'll each get what we want out of the deal. No, God says you don't get to do that. Even if you both agree, you still have to answer to me, and I'm the one who created this thing. So he says, I'm putting you together into this covenant, committed relationship so that you can see each other's flaws and have to deal with them. Now, I'm not saying we do that very well, but it's built into the institution of marriage in a way that dating never can be. I often tell people, you know, dating is not the way to find out what marriage is like. 
Because the way you deal with conflict when you're committed is very different than the way you deal with conflict when you're not sure if the other person's going to bail. Right? It really changes things. Relationship with Jesus is not like dating. And isn't that good? (laughs) Isn't that good to know? Because there's stuff that he wants to reveal to you about you that would make you want to run away. But he's not going to let you do that. If he set his love upon you, he's committed to change you. That's why marriage is the only adequate uh, illustration or picture to help you understand what the love of God for his people is like. It's not, um, God's love for his people is not based on an audition. It's not based on them keeping, towing the line and keeping their nose clean every day. Sometimes dating feels that way. But in marriage, you come together, you're committed. And I always tell people this, like when you make those vows, you either make them out of great faith or naivete. I mean, think about it. How in the world can you come together and make vows to love another person, to honor and cherish them in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, until death parts you? How do you know that you can do that? I mean, if, if you're committed to taking care of yourself and covering your bases, it makes no sense to stand up before all your friends and relatives and make that kind of vow. And I tell people, they either make that vow out of naivete or they make it out of faith, knowing that God makes vows to them that those vows that they're going to make to their spouse are just an echo. The way to understand relationship that God has with his people is that he's vowed to love us, to honor, to cherish us in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. And and his vows do not break with death. In fact, they were sealed, ratified by his death. Therefore, death can never undo them. And when you go into marriage, you go into marriage knowing that you need to be cleansed, but knowing that there is one who's promised to cleanse you and that he's even going to use marriage and the weakness of this other person to do that. You have to go into marriage with great faith. And then it's like you have front row seats to watch God work. Again, it's not easy, but it's powerful. Tim Keller has a couple points along these lines. I'll just mention them briefly. He says it's so important that you let your spouse deal with your uncleanness. Now, in dating, you can try to start to get used to that. But honestly, I feel like a lot of Christian couples probably share more of their junk than the commitment level of the relationship really justifies. So I offer that as a caution. There's something about marriage that's really just different. But not only that... um, You need to understand that when you're committed and connected to somebody like this, they have incredible power to even recreate your self-image by their words. Now, that's a power that they need to steward well. And there, of course, will probably be times when they don't. And again, sometimes it's, it's crazy because in marriage you have this ability to hurt somebody probably more deeply than they could ever be hurt. But you also have power through day in, day out, speaking truth into their fear to help them let go of their idols in a way that can even begin to recreate 
their self-image. Keller tells a story about, you know, feeling like he was kind of a dweeb and not very much of a manly man um, as he entered into marriage. But after 25, 30 years of his wife telling him how much she respects him as a man, it's changed the way he thinks about himself. It's true. I think it's true. I could say the same. Um, well, what about, um, let's talk something else about. I always, when I give wedding sermons, I say, you know, marriage is about more than just this day, but it's also about more than just the two of you who've come together. And this, I think, is tied up in this idea of marriage leaving, cleaving, and we could say weaving. The point here is marriage is about joining together in covenant to advance the kingdom of God in the world. In other words, marriage exists for more than just two people. It affects the whole community, and it should affect the whole kingdom of God. What does it mean to leave? In Genesis, it talks about this, and Paul picks it up here. Briefly, I'll say this. To leave means that the couple is to start a new family, a new family unit, cut the bond and dependence on the parents. David Jones, who is my uh, ethics professor in seminary, says it this way. There is to be a decisive establishment of a new social unit in marriage. But it also means that you leave old patterns that you've lived in. Your family traditions, hers or his, no longer get to rule. You have to say, well, that's wisdom. Our family did that way. That's wisdom. That family did it that way. But how are we going to do it? And that's so important to do that you actually leave. Because here's the point. Unless the Bible says it, everything's up for debate. One, one of the important things you need to understand about the Bible is it doesn't tell you everything about everything. And yet people are always wanting it to speak to things that it doesn't speak to. They're always wanting to add little rules, even though the Bible itself condemns that thing. We do it all the time. And people want to say that's a sin, but the Bible doesn't say it's a sin. So here's the thing. When you come into marriage, you're going to find that there are a lot of those things lurking in your subconsciousness, so to speak. Just assumptions you have about this is right and this is wrong, this is right and this is wrong. And when you come together in marriage, you bump up against somebody who doesn't share all of your opinions about those things, and you actually get to examine them and take them to the Bible and say, is that really true? Is that really right? Does God really care how you put the toilet paper roll on the toilet paper dispenser? Really? I'm just sort of kidding. But you, you, you do get to think about and even reflect on your family traditions and interact with God's word on those. Uh, cleaving, cleaving means this, that you are to bond with your spouse in a strong, loving commitment. Loving and cleaving means that nothing, not your work, not your ministry, not your parents or your friends, can come between you and your spouse, not even your children. The Bible actually says that children are to be trained up so they can go. Now, here's the thing. You know, I wrote in my notes, apply this to your fears. Because as I talk to people and they think about marriage, I think that they have seen many failures to leave and to cleave. And it makes them really wonder about this whole marriage thing. Because for a lot of people, they're very concerned about the family traditions or their family heritage. My family heritage, my parents' marriage fell apart. It's terrible. They can't even talk to one another. Why in the world would I want to get married? And I would say one of the reasons is because you have an opportunity to leave that and embrace and begin something new. Not that it happens automatically. You have to fight hard to leave, 
But leaving and cleaving is a decisive establishing of something new. And that's good news. And that's hope. The point is, you do not have to be doomed to always be like your family has been. Now, for some of you, you've seen beautiful examples of leaving and cleaving. Great. But then on the other hand, you can wonder, how could I ever live up to that? And all I would say is, the same grace that helped your parents is available for you. And God is still faithful. Cleaving. I, I've, I've talked, oh, I, I, I'm so sad sometimes when I talk to students and I find that the parents' way of dealing with their children, they deal with their children like, like their spouse sometimes. And not even in just in divorced cases where one of the children becomes like the surrogate spouse emotionally, the confidant, all that kind of stuff, where you see these failures to cleave and then the cleaving happens somewhere else, either with friends, you know, like the, the husband or the wife just has these friends and they're not really united. They're like sharing the same roof. I, you know, every couple years I meet another student whose parents were basically divorced, lived completely separate lives in the same family but didn't want anybody to know and they put on a good show when they went to church and when they, you know, were in their community. And, and yet the Bible says that leaving and cleaving, leaving and cleaving are what we were made for. And so I want you to have hope that things can change. But then there's also this thing, we call it weaving. And this you get when you go back into Genesis and you see that Adam and Eve were not just called to leave and cleave just for themselves and just for the heck of it. They actually were given work to do in the garden. They were called to name the animals. They were basically called to cultivate the garden. See, the garden is not the whole world. The garden is the cultivated part of God's creation. And the world is not yet cultivated in the beginning in Genesis. And Adam and Eve were to take that cultivation and spread it. This is why, I hope, you're in college. This is why you're studying. This is why you're preparing for your vocation, for a calling, a way of being, using your gifts to serve God and advance His kingdom, His rule, and His rightness into every area of life. And husbands and wives are called to weave together to do that together. I do think one of the questions you should ask is, are we better for the kingdom together than we are by ourselves? And recognizing that some of you may be so filled with shame that you don't think you could ever be good by yourself in any sort of way. So you have to take all that into account. And you probably need some people to give you their feedback on this question. But it's a legitimate question. Because one of the purposes of marriage is not just, oh, finally, I found another person, and now we can just sort of huddle together for warmth for the rest of our lives. No, you're called together so that you can be a witness for God's love to the watching world, but also so that you can join together, so that you can help bring out each other's gifts and strengths. I mean, honestly, I think about this most uh, on Mondays. And I don't think I really have a gift at cleaning the house at all. I don't think anybody that knows me would say that. And yet, if I'm, if I'm in the right frame of mind, and I'm thinking rightly about this, Monday afternoons, I get to clean the house so that my wife can host a Bible study at our house. And you may think, well, gosh, I could be meeting with students and doing, quote-unquote, ministry. But that is ministry. And it's a joy to let my wife be able to interact and to use her gifts. We met in the context of doing college ministry. So it makes so much sense to live my life in a way that I can help her and allow her to do that. But that's not everybody's context necessarily. It may not be the way you live in your marriage one day if you get married. 
But I'm just telling you, I think you should be thinking about this weaving and working together for the good of the kingdom. So marriage is for more than just two. And then let me just say this last two points, because I can finish this. Um, one, of, one of the things that's so tragic about divorce is it doesn't just affect the two. And it doesn't even just affect the kids. It affects a whole community. And um, I think the Christian community really needs to, to pray for marriages, to pray, to live in such a way to encourage marriages that you know. Maybe it means offering to babysit so that people in your church that are too poor can go out for a date night. I don't know what you can do, but I wish the, 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 the fragility of marriages in the, in the context of people you know would be on your heart, and you'd ask God to ask to help you know maybe a place or a way that you could help. Because it really is, it really is for the good of the whole community. I, I, this quote by this, this marriage counselor I think is really powerful. He says this, When I started out as a marriage therapist in the 1970s, I took the attitude that if somebody was thinking of getting out of a marriage, it was my job to help them figure out what was best for them as an individual. When they said things like, well, I'm not so sure I'm being fair to the kids, I and a lot of my colleagues said, well, the kids will be fine if you're fine. Do what you need to do for you. Where are you going to be happiness? Now, he says, I've realized that marriage, once you're in it, is not just a private lifestyle. There are a lot of stakeholders in it. Obviously, your spouse is a stakeholder and your children, but not just your dependent children, even your grown children, too. There's also your extended family, common friends, and a faith community if you're in one. I see marriage now much more as something embedded in a community of people, all of whom have an interest or stake in the marriage. And I'll just tell you, it's, it's ironic to me that when we get married, we call together all our friends and family. And I can't tell you how often people come they suffer in silence in their marriage, and then they come to a pastor, and basically they're already divorced, or they're already like, decided that they're to be divorced, and they've never involved any of that community. And they do it quietly and privately, and nobody knows how to relate to them anymore. And I don't know what the answer is, but somehow, somehow we need to involve people before we throw away marriage. We need to let other people speak into our marriage. So I, I just throw that out there. Um, last thing, beware the two competing idolatries at work. Here's the challenge, and here's the biggest challenge to getting married. There is uh, people in this room, I would say, that probably have the marriage idolatry. This is the I'm nothing and nobody unless I'm married. Now, Belmont's not as much like that as some places. I know some colleges We'll call them the marriage mill on the hill or that sort of thing. Or, you know, places where people say they're just going to get their MRS degree. You know, people joke around about certain schools that way. I don't know if that's what people say about Belmont. I don't quite get that sense. But maybe you know people that are like that. Um, but the marriage idolatry, this person is marked by the hatred of staying single. Their life is consumed by the desire and or attempt to get married. This is really the idol of traditional culture. And it may actually be your parents' idol for you. <laughs> or your grandparents, okay? But then there's the independence idol, which probably more of us 
tend towards. This is the idol of modern culture. Stay free and stay safe. This person seems to have an irrational fear of getting tied down, runs from relationships that begin to get serious. If this person is going to get married, it's only if they find the perfect person who won't challenge their independence or get in their way. Thus, they don't often marry or stay married. So imagine what happens when these two people come together. <laughs> because this is what happens so often. And, and I would say it's so important, and we always in premarital counseling go over uh, idols, but you, un, you have to understand marriage doesn't automatically fix everything. You have to let your spouse work on this. You have to let the gospel work on you, and that means you have to own up to your hopes and your dreams and your goals, whether they're idolatrous, whether they're legitimate, and you have to wrestle and pray through it and work through it. Listen, don't underestimate the impact the easy divorce culture has had on our hopes and our fears. But even more importantly, don't underestimate the power of God to even remake for you an image of marriage as a good and beautiful thing. You know, we sing sometimes hymns by this guy, Henry Light. Um, he wrote, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. He wrote, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. He wrote a hymn called Abide With Me. He wrote a lot of hymns. And what's fascinating to me about him is that he was somebody whose own parents divorced. His mother left. We don't really even know what happened to her. Um, but he was sent off to boarding school. And from then on, his dad would write him letters, and he would sign them, Not your father, but your uncle. And yet, as you read his hymns, in almost every one of them, the father image is a warm and comforting one even though it was not his experience of his earthly father at all. And I always take great encouragement from that. Because I, I, I ask, where did he learn that the father, that the heavenly father was one who was kind and gentle? He learned it from the scriptures. And he learned it from the gospel. And I always take great encouragement from that, that I don't care what your experience has been. I don't care what your fears are. God and the gospel have real power, real power to change you, to even resurrect for you that idea of marriage because it's a beautiful calling. And finally, I'll say this. Usually I, I, I do singleness after marriage. I already talked about singleness and some of you weren't here. Singleness and married life are both callings and legitimate ways to glorify God. And it's kind of crazy because you can talk about all the good things about marriage, yet Jesus himself was single, fully imaged and glorified God. Singleness is also of important and valid calling. I don't know. It's hard to say both things at the same time, and yet that's exactly what the Scriptures do. I don't know if any of you at this point in your life should conclude that you're called to be single forever. I'm going to talk about the goodness of singleness and the goodness of marriage, and then you've got to wrestle with God and work it out. <laughs> but, um, but I just want to make sure that people that weren't here when we talked about singleness hear that word as well. Uh, let me pray.